scripture reading now as we turn to God's word is from Luke chapter 2. We'll read verses 21 through 39 on the circumcision and then the presentation of Jesus at the temple. Luke chapter 2, page 1019 in your pew Bibles, beginning at verse 21. But at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb should be called holy to the Lord, and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, that a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Beloved, it is in this passage that our Lord is given the name Jesus. A rather remarkable thing in itself that the eternal Son of God who comes and and takes on human flesh would, for seven days, be nameless. Here he's finally given a name. That name, as we confess in Lord's Day 11, means Savior. Because he saves us from our sins and salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. He alone is our Savior. And so he's given the name Jesus, which means God saves. 
And yet in order for this newborn infant to become our Savior, not only must he be made like us in, in assuming our flesh in the incarnation, but he must also perfectly fulfill every one of the law's demands. That is um, certainly Luke's concern in this passage as he mentions five times in 19 verses how Christ fulfilled the law. In order to save us, Christ must keep the law for us. Remember, we've seen this Adam theme come up a few times in Luke already. Christ is the second Adam. He'll really emphasize that in the genealogy and then the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. If Christ is going to be the second Adam, then, then he must keep the law where Adam failed. This is, this is where Adam failed, in, in keeping God's command, in breaking God's law. And so now Christ comes as the second Adam to keep God's law for us. But then not just to keep God's law for us, also to suffer in our place as not only our obedient Savior, but also our bleeding Savior, of which we get the first little glimpse here in the cutting of Christ's own flesh. Luke's account of the circumcision and then the presentation of the infant Christ at the temple, we see the obedient Savior and we see also the bleeding Savior, both of which are necessary for our salvation. R.T. France, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, says a gospel of Christmas alone is not a whole gospel. But the suffering the obedience of Jesus that we see in this passage are an integral part of the very gospel that Luke in these 24 chapters proclaims. This is the reason why Christ came. He has come, yes, to take on human flesh, but then also in that flesh to obey and suffer in our place as the obedient, bleeding Savior. Only then can he be called Jesus, which means God saves. So look at me together this morning at first the obedient Christ as we consider Luke's law-keeping theme in these verses. And second, we'll consider the bleeding Christ as Jesus' own flesh is cut for us by virtue of which he is third, the saving Christ as Simeon proclaims. And then last but not least, Jesus is also the thought-revealing Christ will cause the rising or the fall of many, depending on how your hearts respond to this obedient, bleeding Savior. And first, the obedient Christ. Luke tells us in verse 21 of our passage that on Jesus' eighth day, he was circumcised. This, of course, is in keeping with Genesis chapter 17, where God tells Abram, every male among you shall be circumcised on the eighth day. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. In the words of Genesis 17, verse 14 there, God reminds us that to neglect the covenant sign is to break God's covenant. To receive the sign, therefore, is to obey it. That's what Jesus does in verse 21. Even though he in one sense doesn't need to be circumcised, his circumcision represents the, the cutting off of sinful flesh of which Christ has none, nevertheless, he subjects himself to this law for us. As Paul says in Galatians 4, in order that he might redeem us from the law. For Christ to do that, it was first necessary for him to keep the law. 
And Paul says in that, that passage we read earlier from Galatians 4 that he was born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law. And of that, we get a glimpse in Christ's circumcision. An event that I would venture to guess many of you have probably not um, thought about often. Yet a necessary part of Christ's obedience in our place, even though he had no sinful flesh that needed to be cut off, yet he identifies himself with sinful humanity because he has come to be our substitute. Luther said he comes under this law not as a sinner, but without guilt as Lord of the law who takes away the law's authority, yes, tears it to pieces so it can no longer condemn those who believe in him. Christ comes and says, I will subject myself to the law for your sake and and let myself be circumcised so that I can rest from the law its power over all mankind. In order to redeem us from the law, Christ is born under it and submits himself to it. And this is the first glimpse of that in Luke's gospel. Christ keeping the law for us already as an obedient eight-day-old infant. Edwards said this was, was part of Christ's meritorious righteousness. I think we sang, and, and perhaps it was Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, one of the songs that we sang just before the service or earlier in the service. It says, By thine own eternal merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. This is part of that merit, Christ obeying the law for us, Christ achieving what we could not in keeping the law and earning God's favor for us. This was part of his meritorious righteousness. You think of those words of Jesus to John in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus comes to submit himself to baptism. And John says, no, how how can I baptize you? I'm not even worthy to, to unloose your sandals. And Jesus says, no, I must in order to fulfill all righteousness. This is the same kind of thing here in Jesus' circumcision, him fulfilling all righteousness for us. This fulfillment of all righteousness that Jesus has come to do, it goes beyond simply his circumcision. But as we read on, Luke continues to emphasize this in verse 23, that Christ was presented to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Um, Luke is there quoting from Exodus chapter 13, where God tells Israel in connection with the Passover to consecrate to him all the firstborn of Israel. Boys and girls, you remember in the 10th plague that, uh, that all of the firstborn of Egypt were killed. And yet God in his mercy, he, he spared those in Israel who had that blood on their doorposts. And so just after that, literally just a few verses after this, we come into Exodus chapter 13. God legally claims those firstborn as his own. He says, I want you to to consecrate or dedicate those children to me. They're mine. That's the basis here of Mary and Joseph dedicating Christ in the temple. In fulfillment of what God had spoken in Exodus 13, verse 2. Luke draws our attention to the very, very quotation of, of so many of these laws that they are fulfilling to remind us that this is a law obedient family. He'll continue to emphasize that in in the next section of Luke's gospel as he he reminds us that every year they they would go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's reminding us this is a law-obedient family. 
And so they bring Jesus, their firstborn, the firstborn of Mary. In many ways, the firstborn of a whole new humanity to be dedicated to God, called holy, even as Gabriel said in Luke 135. He is here dedicated to the service of the Lord. He belongs to him. It is showing that from his very birth in the way that he keeps God's law. And then Luke also goes on to show us the purification offering that is given at this same time. And uh, if you read Leviticus 12, you see that this would have been 33 days after Jesus' circumcision. And so there's, there's about a month that's passed between verse 21 and verse 22. But now they're, they're going to fulfill the law for purification that must be given as per Leviticus 12 to make atonement for the uncleanness of a woman who's just given birth. The idea is that because of the sinful nature of the child who's born, the same sinful nature that we heard confessed yesterday in the baptismal vows that Andrew and Holly made, because of the, the sinful nature of, of the child who is born, the woman is considered unclean, and so she must therefore bring a burnt offering to make atonement. That's the idea behind this purification offering in Leviticus 12. Now, now obviously, Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, did not inherit Adam's sin nature. But nevertheless, he again identifies himself with sinful humanity and goes with his mother that they might give this purification offering. And Calvin says, the, the fountain of purity, in order to wash away our impurity, chose to be reckoned unclean. He did this in obedience to the law, and he did it as a prelude to the cross where he who knew no sin would become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here Christ is obeying the law, and yet at the same time Christ is identifying with sinners. But the main point that I want you to appreciate at least here is Christ's perfect active obedience. Even the things that pertained more specifically to Mary, like her purification, notice Luke speaks of in verse 22 as their purification. Because he wants to emphasize the point of Jesus' perfect obedience. That's why he mentions them doing what is according to the law in verse 22, and in verse 23, and verse 24, and verse 27. And then again, just in case we didn't get the point, as he, as he wraps up this whole section, he says it again in verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law, they went back to Galilee. Luke is at pains to emphasize the obedience of Christ his perfect law-keeping in everything that was written in the law in our place. Maybe some of you are aware of the last words of J. Gresham Machen before his death. He said, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. He recognized the absolute necessity of Christ keeping every aspect of the law of Jesus, receiving the lawful sign of the covenant of, of Jesus, being lawfully consecrated to God as the firstborn of Mary, of Jesus, living the rest of his life in perfect obedience to every aspect of God's law. This passage here, the very beginning of his life, is setting the tone for the rest of his life one of perfect obedience to every aspect of God's laws. He says in Matthew chapter 5, every jot and tittle. 
If Christ is going to be the second Adam, the firstborn of a new race, then he must keep God's command in every way. As the obedient Adam who earns life and blessing for us. That, of course, also takes our curse and dies our death, which is the the second aspect of what Christ does as the second Adam. He obeys where we did not, meriting life and blessing, but then he also takes the penalty for our disobedience. This perfectly obedient son comes into the world to do the will of his father, but then dies the death of a sinner. And we see that dreadful fate forecast already in this passage at at verse 21, what I've called the bleeding Christ. Many uh, theological traditions, actually, the circumcision of of Jesus is celebrated as a feast day, eight days after Christmas, counting, I mean, inclusively, that's New Year's Day, January 1st. Even the the Church Order of Dort recognized this. And an event that is, is seen in verse 21 is no insignificant matter. And so the church throughout its history, the church still in many, many um, uh, traditions recognizes this as, as no insignificant thing. But this is the first shedding of the incarnate Christ's blood. The one who was taken on human flesh in the incarnation now eight days later has that flesh cut off. I want you to appreciate the significance of what's happening In verse 21, in fact, I think Luke wants us to appreciate it, and that's why you notice in your your Bibles this, it's a bit odd. Where where exactly does this fit in? In in the ESV with the the subheadings, it's sort of lumped in with the the angelic announcement of the passage before it, but but it's really not part of that. It's it's almost set apart as as its own distinct little pericope. This this section is no little add-on to what happened before, nor, nor just a, a prelude to what comes after it, but, but Luke wants to, to emphasize the significance of this event in its own right. Jesus circumcised for us. Remember I said that because we are conceived and, and born in sin, even, even newborn infants are considered unclean. That's why Mary had to undergo that purification offering of Luke, or Leviticus chapter 12. In the same way, the rite of of circumcision spoke to this same reality. It spoke to the sinfulness of the flesh as it symbolized the fact that our sinful flesh needs to be cut off. That if we will be welcomed into God's covenant community, that circumcision is the rite of of, of initiation into the covenant community, that in order to dwell with this holy God, our sinful flesh must be cut off. That's what it symbolized. It signifies the judgment we deserve. It is applied to the reproductive organ because it is through procreation that our our sinful corruption passes from one generation to another. And so the foreskin of the reproductive organ is cut off. And Jesus undergoes this circumcision, this cutting off, even though he had no sinful flesh to speak of. That is, in fact, what he has come into this world to do, to be cut off because of sin, even though he had none. Circumcision speaks of the bloody judgment God requires because of sin. And Christ undergoes that. In fact, some have even suggested there may be a typological or prophetic aspect to the circumcision rite itself as it's limited just to males pointing ahead to the male child who will be cut off by means of a bloody judgment for us. 
That's what Christ has come to do. In fact, Isaiah 53 will use this same language of being cut off and apply it to Jesus as it says that he will be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. J.V. Fesco even suggests that when Colossians 2 speaks of the circumcision of Christ, it's referring to his cutting off that took place at the cross. Which is why we don't require circumcision anymore because Christ has done all the bleeding that is needed. As we confess in our Belgian confession, Christ, by his blood, has put an end to every other shedding of blood so that we now have a bloodless sign. That sign of washing that we witnessed yesterday. Christ at the cross will fulfill circumcision, but by doing all of the bleeding that is needed. And here, as Calvin says, we we see the prelude to that. This bleeding in Luke 2, verse 21, was the prelude to that bleeding. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said the blood that was shed at his circumcision was propitiatory. It had the nature of satisfaction. Or Gerhardus Voss, the blood of the Savior's circumcision is as much atoning blood as the blood shed on Golgotha. This is part of him paying our debt. And so I think it's significant that in the moment of Christ's first shedding of blood, it's in that moment that he has given the name Jesus, which means God saves. How does he save? He saves through the shedding of blood. And here we see the first instance of the incarnate Christ's bleeding flesh, the first cut of which there would be more, the the first cry at the tearing of his flesh. Can you see how this is the prelude to the cross? And how even the circumcision of Jesus preaches the gospel. Arthur Joss says, already on the eighth day of Jesus' life, his destiny of atonement is revealed in his name and circumcision. As we sang yesterday in the hymn, what child is this? Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And already we see that destiny of atonement in the knife that cuts his flesh as an infant. Though he was perfectly sinless and did not deserve it, yet he identifies with sinful humanity and is cut off for us, subjecting himself to a bloody judgment meant for sinners. What a savior. As France said, a gospel of Christmas alone is not a whole gospel. We need the cross too. We need the circumcision too. We need the bleeding Christ by virtue of which he has given the name Jesus meaning God saves. He saves us by the obedient one bleeding on our behalf. The flesh that he assumed in the incarnation being cut off and bleeding. Which Simeon himself alludes to in our passage as the Christ child is is dedicated here in the temple. It says that he's taken up in the arms of old Simeon who, who has been told that he will not taste death until he's seen the Lord's Christ. What does Simeon say in verse 35 to Mary? But that on account of this child, a sword will pierce her own soul. That's referring to the grief that she will suffer at the cross. Throughout all Christ's suffering, but but the culmination will be when she watches her own son be pierced at the cross. 
Mothers, could you imagine the grief to watch, in this case, your own sinless son be condemned as a criminal and cry out, as it says in Hebrews 5, verse 8, with loud tears and cries of anguish and be pierced. A spear driven through his side, a crown of thorns driven into his skull, mocked, spat on, stripped. Yes, Mary would suffer on account of this child. The very suffering that Simeon warns her of speaks of his. That this obedient son in whom the aged Simeon rejoices will suffer a bloody judgment for his people on account of which those who love him will mourn. His own mother's soul will be pierced. The sprawl says this can only refer to Christ's passion. The prelude of which we have just seen, the bleeding infant, the culmination of which the aged prophet proclaims that this child will be hated by many, he will be a sign opposed, and those who love him will have their own soul pierced by the things that he will suffer. Yet despite his suffering, Simeon also reminds us that through his suffering will come salvation. This passage speaks of the obedient Christ. It it speaks of the bleeding Christ. And through his obedience and bleeding, he becomes also the saving Christ. Let's back up now to verse 25, where it tells us as Christ is brought into the temple and the righteous and devout, spirit-filled Simeon sees him. It says he he takes, or literally he he receives the child, blesses God, and says, now you may let your servant depart in peace. Simeon had been told, it it tells us back in verse 26, that he would not taste death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And now he sees this poor couple bringing in their child and rejoices. Back in verse 24, when it says that Mary and Joseph gave a pair of turtle doves, a purification offering, if you read Leviticus 12, it's interesting that Leviticus 12 actually says it should be a lamb. Unless the family is too poor, can't afford a lamb, in which case a pair of turtle doves or pigeons will suffice. The very nature of Mary's offering reveals the poverty into which Christ comes. He is not the kind of Messiah that God's people would have expected. And yet, as Luther said of Simeon, he he has a very penetrating eye. In this child, there is no kingly mien or royal garb to see, merely the form of a poor beggar. The mother is poor with, with hardly five pennies to redeem her child. In keeping with the law, the child is wrapped in poor swaddling clothes. Nevertheless, Simeon comes up without anyone's testimony to publicly attest this child is the savior of the world and the light of the nations. Luther says this is a very remarkable sermon and a wonderful witness on behalf of the child as Simeon looks upon this little infant wrapped in shaggy wraps by reasoned judgment. He would have had to say, this is no king but a beggar child. But he does not allow his reason to judge by what his eyes behold, but denominates this child as a king greater than all the kings of the earth. 
He comprehends everything that the scriptures state and associates with this child now lying in his arms. We, we sang just a few moments ago, in his temple God shall appear. That, that's referring back to Malachi 3 verse 1, where it says that, that suddenly the Lord God would descend and he, he would appear in his temple. And, and Simeon here sees in this little child being brought in by his poverty-stricken parents, the fulfillment of that God condescending to dwell among his people. The consolation of Israel has now come. God has brought comfort to his people. As we sang just before the service, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. The king of heaven has condescended in the form of a poor, bleeding infant. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our redeemer, shepherd, friend. Christ comes to bring comfort to his people in the darkness. You see that word for comfort or consolation in verse 25? We see again that theme for darkness in verse 31. The same thing that Zechariah sang of in his song. God has come in the person of his son to bring comfort to his people in the darkness. Simeon is proclaiming the the salvation that this obedient Christ, this bleeding Christ will bring. In fact, he says in verse 30, as as he looks at him, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, the child in his arms is not simply part of God's plan. The the, the child that he's holding is not simply part of God's plan of salvation, but this child is salvation itself. Salvation is not merely a plan. Salvation is not merely a formula. Salvation is a person. And Samuel is holding him in his arms. The one whose name, remember, means God saves. He himself is salvation. The person of Christ who, who joins together God and man in his own person, that God and man might be joined together again. He himself is salvation. In his humiliation, in his bleeding, in his name. And Samuel says, I can die now. Lord, I have seen your salvation. In the face of this child who will suffer and cause the soul of his mother to be pierced, but in his suffering will cause the rising of many. Simeon in verse 34 is saying the same thing that Mary said in her song back in Luke 1, that account, uh, an account of what this child will do, the, the humble, the poor, the suffering will be exalted so that their suffering will give way to glory. He will save them. Verse 32, he will be their light. And not just for Israel, but but Simeon says, for all people, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Christ comes to bring salvation to every nation. As the second Adam obeys where Adam failed, then takes our curse, saving not just Israel, but all humanity. As the firstborn of a whole new race, the savior of both Jew and Gentile, a theme that Luke will continue to develop throughout his his gospel and throughout volume two in the book of Acts, that Christ has come to save people from every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, so the same passage that Simeon is here quoting from. 
in the servant song that he's quoting from here in Isaiah 49, remember there, there's those four servant songs that speak of the, the coming suffering of the Savior of Israel. And uh, Isaiah 49 in that servant song, it's this almost conversation between the father and the son where the father says of the son in light of the things that he will suffer that it's too light a thing for him only to save the tribes of Jacob. He says, no, I will make you a light for every nation so that your salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This, by the way, is the basis for our missionary and evangelistic endeavors. God has promised that it's too light a thing for Christ only to be exalted among one people, but he will make him a light to every nation. His light is to be proclaimed to people in the darkness from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This obedient, bleeding Savior is God's salvation. He brings light to those in the darkness of their sin by living the obedient life that you could not and dying the death that you should have as his body is pierced on the cross, the prelude of which we see just eight days after his birth as his flesh is cut off. He assumes human flesh, that that flesh might bleed as he dies our death and takes our curse, nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. For all who respond to this obedient Savior, as Simeon does, as Anna does at the end of our passage. That is in verse 34, how Simeon emphasizes the varying responses to this Savior, therefore the, the varying effects of his ministry. It says that he will be for the, the rising and the fall of many. It is a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts of the hearts of many will be revealed. Simeon is announcing that this obedient, bleeding Savior, this obedient, bleeding Christ, is also the thought revealing Christ who will either be opposed, ignored, rejected leading to the fall of those who oppose him, or humbly received as the Savior he is, leading to the rising, the, the exaltation, the salvation of those who so respond. You will either be exalted or brought low depending on how you respond to this child. This is the same thing Mary said in Luke 152. He will exalt those of humble estate who humbly receive him, he will scatter the thoughts of the proud in the, the thoughts of their hearts who will not receive him. This speaks of the mixed response to the Christ. The, the dividing line. The one, your, your response to which places you in one of two camps. Christ is the savior of the world, but Simeon is reminding us you must so respond to him in faith. And those who do not, he speaks of them falling. He speaks of the judgment that will come on those who do not receive him. Simeon shows us there is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. Whoever is not for him is against him. Jesus will say that very thing. You either receive him like Anna and like Simeon, or you trip over him and fall like those throughout Luke's gospel who reject him. There's only people in Nazareth who will try to throw him off a cliff. Those will be offended by his humility. Say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? 
Those will be offended by his poverty. This can't be the Savior and King and Messiah that we've long been waiting for. Those who ultimately will be offended by his cross and by his death. This isn't the Savior. If he was the Savior, they say, then he could simply call out for God to bring bring his angels and rescue him from the cross. If you're truly the one that you say you are, then come down from the cross. They're offended by his humiliation and they stumble over him and fall in unbelief. Seems as you're showing us at the beginning of his gospel, don't respond like them, but respond like Anna. Simeon's saying, respond like me. I just want to finish by looking at these two responses to the infant Christ in Simeon and in Anna. We meet um, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher in verse 36, who is well advanced in years, and it says she lived with her husband seven years before becoming a widow. And the the text may actually indicate uh, 84 years of of widowhood after his death, placing her in her early 100s um, in that, that Time, 12, 13, 14 years old was the age of of betrothal and marriage. And so that would put her uh, as a a, a young 100-year-old or or so. And it says that this aged Anna did not depart from the temple, but she would worship God with fasting and prayer night and day. Again, even there, teaching us, I think, a little, little something about continuing to serve God even in our later years, that she did not allow her... Uh, age of either 84 or 103 or whatever she is to to give her a free pass to simply sit idly by and and, and do nothing. But she said, no, I can continue to serve the Lord by praying and and praying specifically for the redemption of Israel. And so night and day she goes to the temple fasting and praying. And it says that on this day when Jesus has been brought into the temple and Simeon is proclaiming him to be the savior of Israel, not only Israel, but of the world. She came up at that very hour, heard it, and began giving thanks to God and speaking of Christ to all who waited for the redemption of Jerusalem. This daughter of Phanuel, which means face of God, now beheld the face of God of the person of Christ and rejoiced. And she went on and spoke to all the waiting saints, even from those lost tribes like the one from which she came and told them the one that we've been waiting for is here. He's come to the form of a poor beggar child who's come to save us. Redemption has come. He has come to fulfill the law for us, to suffer in our place and, and save us. She's showing us what our response, what the, the response of the faithful should be to this child who's come. Just as we saw yesterday, her response is faith-filled worship and thanksgiving that God has come to redeem his people and that faith-filled worship spills over into witness. Anna does not stumble over this child. She does not oppose him, but gladly receives him, worships, and then witnesses to others that the Christ has come. And so she teaches what our response should be also. Not only does she teach us what our response should be, but likewise Simeon, who receives the child in verse 28 into his arms as a picture of how we must respond by faith. Taking him up not in our, our arms, but in our hearts by faith and rejoicing that in Christ we behold God's salvation. 
Back in Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1, remember he framed it in verse 68 down to 78 in terms of, of a divine visitation where God has come to visit his people. As we looked at Zechariah's song a few weeks ago, we said that such a, a divine visitation requires hospitality. It requires that we receive him. The majority of Israel will fail to do that, but Simeon here shows us what our response should be to God's visitation in the person of his son, whose name means God saves. To receive him by faith, confess that he is Lord in Christ, who has perfectly kept every one of God's laws, will yet suffer the bloody judgment of God for sin, though he knew no sin, and will in that way become salvation personified, whose name is Jesus. The obedient, bleeding Savior, you either stumble over in unbelief and fall in eternal judgment or respond to in faith, like Anna, like Simeon, and say, now, Lord, you may let your servant depart in peace, for I have beheld with the eye of faith your salvation, this obedient, bleeding child. Anyone who has so responded to Christ in faith can say with Simeon, now, Lord, you may let your servant depart in peace. I'm ready and prepared to die. For I have seen your salvation. But anyone who has not so responded is not ready to die. What is your response to the Christ of Christmas? What is your response to this circumcised Savior? Let it be like Anna, and like Simeon, joy-filled reception where you take him up into your arms by faith and say, now, Lord, I'm ready to die for the Christ has come. And until then, I will rejoice in worship and in witness like these aged saints who teach us how to respond to this obedient, bleeding Savior who is God's salvation personified. May we so respond in faith both today and every day. Amen. Close the prayer from the old uh, book of common prayer on Christ's circumcision. Almighty God, who made thy blessed Son to be circumcised and obedient to the law for us, grant us the true circumcision of your Spirit, that our hearts and all our members, being mortified from all worldly and carnal lusts, may in all things obey thy blessed will. Through thy same Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.